Oaths Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. friends and listeners and welcome to our new episode episode number 14 of season 6 and my guest today will be Mog Morgan and this third time round speaking about Egypt and its magic will close a certain kind of well I don't call that a cycle but a, a little a little view from different angles on a similar subject so I'm glad you're here back with me. Welcome. My name is Rudolf and I am your host, speaking to you from the outskirts of Austrian's lovely capital, Vienna. Today is July the 25th and um, I do not want to forget, I tell you right away, that after this episode, the Thoughts Hermes podcast will take a short break for two weeks, two weeks only, no worries, no long break like last year. Uh, it's just a little summer holiday break that I think will do well for all of us, including myself. And I'm developing a few new ideas also for the upcoming new season, new season seven. Season seven will start with its first episode on August 15, promised and I'm very much looking forward to present a whole bunch of interesting people uh, again then starting August 15. That being said, I'm glad you're here today with me and I'm glad that you have found your way back to the Thoth Hermes podcast. I also very particularly welcome all of you who are here for the first time uh, or uh, have not yet much experience. Every week I get news from people, I get some feedback from people who have discovered this podcast. So those of you who like this podcast, who know it, who have known it for some time, do continue to spread the word because there apparently are still many seekers and occultists out there who have not yet come across us here. It would be lovely if you helped to even get it more out into the world. And while I'm talking about that, well... Thanks to all of you who are supporters, who are patrons of this podcast, who do send me uh, feedback regularly. That's really, really very kind of you. So if you are not yet a supporter of this podcast, if you are not yet a patron, please become one. We would like to have you on board with us and we need your support. Uh, and that support can be done either by a one-off donation, there is a donation button on the website that you can use, but you could also just go to Patreon, patreon.com, and then choose the Thought Service podcast there. Um, you can support us starting with $1 per week, and if you don't find your way around to go on the website of Patreon, you can do that also from the Thought Service podcast. Uh, website itself. There is a link, just push the patron button and you'll be there. And um, speaking about the website, that website, our website is 
thothermes.com. That is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And for those of you who are newcomers to this show who have not yet heard many episodes, there you will find all the previous episodes. It's almost 90 now episodes that you can find. Really interesting people have been my guests already here. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy that. You also find all the show notes there, all the details about the, the, the books that I present, the people that I talk to, and also the music that we play in this show. So that is thoughtservice.com. And while you're there, then why not send me a feedback? Feedback which is either been done by a contact page that we have on the website, but you can also send a simple email info at thoughthermes.com and there is the opportunity to send me a voicemail let me hear your voice on the right side you have a tab saying send voicemail and that's free for you and you can send me your message vocally isn't that lovely or you go to the facebook or twitter pages and there you can also send me news from you okay great now guys um Music, as always, as every week, I play three pieces of music. And this week, I chose to replay three authors, three musicians that have already been here on the show. And A, which I like, I like their music. And B, they, you liked them. And so I thought, well, why not mix three of those people that you really liked and play music by them? And the first, uh, the first musician who I represent here again is the guy from Sweden, Frater F. Um, we have been corresponding for quite some time, about a year back, and then we kind of lost track of each other. Well, maybe he's still listening to this show, and uh, if he hears that we play again a piece of his, then Frater F, do get back in touch with me, would be lovely to hear from you, and... It will be about time that we speak on this show about your music as we planned. Okay, so we hear now a, a lovely piece by Frater F. And this piece is called Four, like the figure four. So Four by Frater F. Enjoy. <laughs>
four, like the figure four by Frater F. One more piece of his lovely music that we have already played here on this show and I hope you enjoyed that one just as much as the others that you were able to hear before in the Thought Hermes podcast. Morg Morgan is my guest here today and we are going to speak about Egyptian magic, which is also the title of his latest book, but also several other books he has issued before have been speaking about that context and the issue and um, his approach to Egyptian magic is very Scythian. Um, he's going to explain much about that and in any case, Smog, when you start talking to him, at least when I start talking to him, then you really find out that there are so many things you want to talk about and it's continuing uh, in completely different ways than you expected before. It's lovely really to talk to him, it's great, it was a great hour I passed in this company and I hope you're going to enjoy that just as much as I did. Um, he is also a respected publisher, Mandrake of Oxford, Oxford City in the UK where he lives. Uh, Mandrake of Oxford is a really res very respected uh, publisher of occult books and um, I don't know how he does that, but he really has such an important catalog with so many interesting people and he discovered so many interesting people and that has given him the title of respected literary catalyst by someone. Um, and I think uh, that person who invented that, that name for him, uh, that for Mork, that he was really, he was really right because he is not only um, publishing people who we all know, but he discovers people, he makes them names, they become names through the way he discovers and works with them. And he's also an author of quite a few books himself on, as I said, mostly Egyptian subjects, but also about others, um, Golden Dawn, where he's uh, Golden Dawn's occult society is also something that he has founded in earlier years. He was a member of the OTO. He's a renegade, as he calls himself in the interview. You'll hear all that. Right, and as always, I want to read to you a little text, an excerpt from that latest book of his from Egyptian Magic by Mork Morgan. But this time it's not going to be prose. Um, um, Mork, he opens his book uh, with a poem, a, a kind of meditative poem that he wrote uh, and he printed it on the first page of that book. And I decided to read that text to you and we will start the interview with a personal interpretation of that text by its author, by Mark Morgan. So I thought that would be interesting to do it that way. Um, if maybe my English is not good enough for you, or if simply if you want to hear that or to read that text again, because once Mock told you what he wanted to say with that text, then just go on the website of the Thermis website, go uh, navigate through your way through the episode and its show notes, and you will find the entire text of that of that poem on the show notes page. So don't miss out that one. And now I'm going to read for you that little poem by Mork Morgan called Drawing Down the Plough. 
Whenever I have need of you, I draw down the plow. Standing under the night stars, the canopy clear above me, searching the heavens for your sign. An ox moving with the shins, tethered to a mast of flint in the northern part of the sky. First I rouse your maid to lie sleeping in the earth beneath, stamping the ground, so Bat for Bata will awake, tremors below rising through me a conduit for the seething cauldron, as the power rises to my belly, my arms upwards piercing the barriers separating I and thou. And down it flows, that thing, into me or my cup, or via me to my companion, dizzy now with the elixir. I follow your movements backwards to the nameless Aeon, when none ruled but I. Let's now go to Oxford and meet Mock Morgan. Here comes the interview. I'm pleased to welcome here on the Thought Harris podcast tonight, Mock Morgan. Mock, who has been somebody everybody knows who reads books on magic and the occult, I'm sure, because not only he's the CEO, as the Americans say, of that wonderful Mandrake of Oxford publishing house, but also he's a respected literary catalyst, as he has been named. And uh, but before we go into all that, Mox, first of all, hello. Hi, very nice to have you here. Hello. Yeah. Very glad to be here as well. Great. Great. Thank you. And um, I just read a poem as an excerpt from your last book, I believe it is Egyptian Magic, a Spirited Guide. And that book opens with that poem, Drawing Down the Plow. And why don't we start by asking you to give us a little personal interpretation of that poem, which I just read to people, which they should have just in mind now. Well, um, it acts as the kind of uh, introduction to the, to the book, but also the introduction to magic. And it's quite, it's quite personal to me because I suppose when I started this journey a, uh, a while ago now, really, uh, I was actually out in, uh, in on a kind of at night, right, with some people in a kind of outside in the countryside, and as a kind of way of getting inspiration, I kind of went into this idea of what I heard about this idea of drawing down the moon, of course, as sure, kind of common, famous, famous ritual. Book, yes. I thought, <laughs> but then there's this constellation in the sky, and. Uh, which I'm just getting kind of interested in because of connections to all sorts of areas. So I thought, well, why not do the same sort of thing of draw, drawing down the plow? And I was with another person as well, and we kind of drew it down into each other. And it was a kind of, yeah, it was, it was an initiation. It kind of opened up the whole subject, really. Um, in fact, so much so that I can, that was from an Egyptian point of view, and the plow plays this important 
role in the, the Ursa Major in the, the Egyptian culture and Egyptian magic. But yeah, so it kind of keeps cropping up in all sorts of other systems. It's quite important in the Chinese one. And I'm also quite interested in uh, Indian mythology and uh, tantrism and stuff. And I've just kind of discovered that there's a kind of tantric version of it as well. There's a drawing down the plow. So it's, but I stumbled upon something, if you like, that is actually quite common, right, or universal across different magical systems. So, yeah, the idea, yeah, so that, that, that I thought I had to sort of open, you know, make that available to me and say that that's what opened it all up. And that is, if, if you want to get into Egyptian magic, uh, my my suggestion is that that's the first, even before I start talking about it in the book, as you're kind of aware, mm-hmm. pretty much I I start with that with no explanation, really. Uh, I can't remember if I've, I said, why don't you do this, uh, or I just sort of launch straight into it. But I think later on I see it suggests that. I think you talk so, about it later on, yes. Yeah, so it's got a little four-square ritual before it, which is which is another kind of little, which I call the Abydos arrangement, and then straight into this thing. So rather than getting too overloaded with how do you do this ritual and that ritual and blah, 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 it was quite a simple thought that you just go out under the stars and you just kind of draw down a, a contact, which is the main contact for the Egyptian tradition in lots of ways, and for others. So, so that's why it's at the beginning. Um, and it's, it's um, yeah, I like it. I still, I often do this, you know, quite quite a lot. And I've, I've suggested it to to people. I mean, I think people have listened to it as well. That you can draw down. You don't have to just draw down the moon. You can draw down other things planets and other constellations maybe but this one really does work so that's why i'm glad you like it i like it a lot as well you know i Um, do yeah uh, um you know as i say it starts with this idea of drawing down the plow just standing outside and looking at it and of course the thing about the plow is a major is probably the easiest constellation because constellation stuff like that plays a big part in the egyptian magical system but this is the, the probably the most obvious one and uh and it's a te- it is a teacher. If you sort of meditate upon it, it kind of does also like the fact that it's always there. That we kind of almost ignore it most of the time because it's always there. And we think, oh well, everybody knows that constellation. It's the one you kind of learn. You can never remember the other ones, but everybody knows that one. It never goes away. And I thought, yeah. well, kind of we're taking it for granted, really. Uh, and then I kind of linked it, of course, with the. I discovered that, uh, as probably everybody knows now, that uh, Ursa Major is, is linked in the Egyptian system with, with the god called Set. Um, yep. And again, that's an interesting lesson, that a constellation that is so ubiquitous in the sky is linked with this deity that we're kind of warned against, in a way. Absolutely. Uh, but you think, well, this always there. You know, there must have kind of been thought of the double take there, uh, the, this, this constellation. And so then the second bit goes on to it, to the idea of who is the consort, the mate, if you like, of of Ursa Major of what? And, I, and again, you go to this very, very ancient uh, soul, female soul, really, which is the, what her name means. Uh, she is the soul of the female, and she's the kind of consort of of this con, of this of Ursa Major. And that was the second thought. That was an amazing thing. Um, and I suppose as well, I was kind of quite in. I, I, there's, the magic I do is kind of quite kind of 
free form, I suppose, and maybe people might call it shamanic or anything. But there's this idea that when you're in the when you're kind of turned on to this, or when you're inspired, you actually physically do shake. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a kind of tendency to think, oh, I better do something about that, you know, I better suppress that. But it, but in fact, that is a kind of phenomenon that you find from all over the place, this shamanic shaking. So the poem goes into that idea of draw, of allowing yourself to become completely intoxicated by these uh, entities to such an extent that you and you're outside and it's probably a bit cold and stuff. So you just let yourself be, shake, shake if you like, taken over by it. So all the many, do, it's a quite a simple poem, but there are lots of different things that are very, very important to me anyway in, in terms of the magical journey. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot in that I think. Well, uh, well, thank you for that insight also. But and for everybody who now said, hmm, I didn't listen to Rudolf when he read it. Um, <laughs> go to the website and and I, you'll find it also on the show notes. I'll put with your permission. I'll put it yeah, there yeah, go for so it. people can reread reread it again. Um, you, you mentioned shamanism. I was thinking of that as well when I read the poem for the first time. That it's interesting because you you bring this Egyptian magic and this grimoire as we should mm. probably call the book um really really uh, also from from yes from that side from that very earthy side from the very early times of the egyptian even ancient egyptian history right mm. uh, but you when i said grimoire you were laughing they you would <laughs> well, you no, don't agree on that <laughs> why not you know well that's a, that's a good thought i suppose it is yeah why why not uh, the grimoire being a kind of it's a compilation of everything i think there's probably some things i missed out but pretty much everything i've discovered that you're going to need in order to really get into this uh, egyptian magical system is this maybe takes a slightly view a different view of it than other people and it goes back to the kind of uh tries to go back to the most ancient sources in lots of ways which again is the a major connection which is like one of these really old connections in in, in mythology but yeah no I guess it is it, uh, so I, I, it's taken me a while to assemble all this material and work through it um, in various forums and stuff so it's ended up as quite a tome wasn't it it's ended up as like about 400 pages of yes, it so is. far yeah, yeah. Um, and so yeah, no, I think you're right. It is. It's getting that. It's getting that way. I think I'm quite. Uh, at least there is, you a, say that, you know? there is a lot of work to be done if you want to work it through. Also, not yeah. just read it, but 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 use what is being said. It's funny because uh, when I when I. Um, announce this episode i was saying well we are going to close a almost a little cycle of egyptian magic here because we had uh, zemi who you certainly know and his thought school at the the church of of feathers and then we had um diane craigcamp with Mm -hmm. her undo at great awakening book now is the egyptian magic is egypt i mean egypt has always been the source for western occultism but um I get the feeling that lately there has been a, almost a kind of revival, but going, uh, drawing that into the 21st century in a very specific way. Would you would you agree? And and if yeah. so, how, why do you think that is the case? Um, I think that's right. I think it's gone on to a new level, really. And it's kind of, 
I mean, I suppose the kind of Egyptians wanted this to happen, didn't they? They kind of prophesied that at some point Egypt would rise again, and I think that's kind of what they meant. The philosophy would come back into, into the world, mm. uh, and it's taken us a while. But I think there are probably a couple of things that happened also in the, in the end of the last century that kind of propelled it forward. Uh, I mean the trans the translation or the compilation of the what they call the Greek magical papyri, which is kind of wrongly named, really. It should be called the Egyptian magical papyri because that's pretty much what they are. But that process, that book, has kind of revolutionised everybody's stuff, really. Mm. That this is the, they found the you, know, you talk about grimoires; those are the grim the, the better form form of all the grimoires, really. They also you recognise that the grimoires kind of go back to the Egyptian system when once that appeared, and that's kind of changing the magical world and taking it to a deeper level. Some people don't like it, of course. Um, and have been quite critical of that because the stuff in the PGM is so ambiguous in, in some ways, and it's still, people think, well, there's what's so sophisticated of that. So I think that happened before that in 1975, the publication of two academic books um, set loads of confusion and uh, oh, the mythology of Horus and Set. Came out in in the same year, and you know you wouldn't. They're two kind of seemingly quite boring books. Um, well, they're not boring, but you know you kind of think, well, they just look like standard yeah. academic books and everything. But yeah. they have, I think that they're probably the, two of the most influential magical books ever. Really, they kind of completely changed the world and its view of uh, Egyptian culture and stuff. Obviously, they spawned a few organisations. So I think the things that happened then, but. Yeah, you're right. It's coming to a new level now, really, that people are, you know, we had to get a means to an end. You know, we had to have all the Alice Crowleys and all these sort of people who were, and Blavatsky and uh, this dream of the East West and everything. But it's sort of starting to be fulfilled now. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's the, that's the, the the world we're in. I think so. You know, I want I that's happened to me as well, and I kind of had a. A kind of a view of how you might approach that, knowing how it done before. What worked for me, yeah. um, and what I think is important for people to do. So yeah, no, I think you're right. We're in a new. We definitely are in a new age now, mind you. Everybody thinks that, don't they? But <laughs> I think it's probably <laughs> but, true. But I think we are kind of very strongly at the yeah. moment. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree completely. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's by far not the first book that you personally wrote on on Egyptian magic. We have the book called Tankem, I think it's called, and then The Bull of Ombus, and one I I really like, uh, I don't know if it's still available, is The Supernatural Assault in Ancient Egypt. Uh, um, that, that's about dreams and what happens in dreams and all that. Yeah. Um, a hobby of yours, I guess. <laughs> um, At least that's so, the Egyptian way. That is, yeah, dreams exactly. are, as in most of these systems, same in Tantrism, same in, the, in Taoism. Dreams are the kind of hidden bit of technique right that uh, people tend to dismiss but is kind of important uh, yeah no I can those books are still around and they were part of the journey see originally I had a, a kind of teacher who had a I suppose you call it a demonic teacher in a way but I don't say who it was, it was da, da, one, of these, <laughs> in the old Greek one of these teachers is also a little bit flawed and whatever but 
he was very knowledgeable, it has to be said, and he kind of, I said I'd heard about this deity that, at, that, at that point called Set, who seemed quite interested in a way because he was so ambiguous and, you know, and, uh, and, and that seemed an interesting thing. And he'd said, uh, go and, in a, in a moment, because usually he was sending me off in the wrong direction, but he said, go and study the Temple of Seti the First in Abydos. Uh, you know, but really study it. Don't just sort of go, go and, because so, I have access to the library, go and look at the sources and really, he said all the mysteries of life are there, really. Uh, all Everything you want, you'll find there. So, but I didn't, and it didn't happen all in one go, but it was, it was a, a step. So the books in a way are the kind of steps that I, the earlier books are the steps I took. And then, of course, I had the Boulevard Boss. It was the same thing. I kind of felt I needed to, having done all this research into the mythology of Seth, which seems kind of quite, or Seth, that seemed quite misrepresented. And it seemed an important theme that people should, uh, were being presented that, that they weren't taken seriously enough or the information wasn't available, that I kind of summarised everything that I discovered at that point, and that's uh, the the thing, the bullet, and he was called the Bull of Homboss, of course, right. and, and this is one of the epithets of set. So the, hence, so, but every, so I did all these various studies uh, on supernatural assault, which is the kind of, reading but taking the idea of nightmares really and seeing how what a nightmare would be like in ancient Egypt because they often described them and what we can learn because as I say nightmares we, we are kind of quite a quite an important aspect of dreaming in a way often a nightmare is the most important dream you're going to have that, that in that period you know but you kind of re reject them and the Egyptians really like this so, so Oh, I did all these various studies of different things and went off on various tangents, but every time there was always a little... There, there was, I always thought, oh, well, if you're going to buy a book with a kind of theory in it, you want some... People who like a bit of practicality as well. They want you to kind of uh, show them a bit of the oh, magic yeah. that's related to that. And I, I always got frustrated with other books that sometimes they tell you an interest in, about an interest in ritual... But then they'd say, they break off and they say, but of course nobody wants to know all the details of the ritual, really. You just want to know that this is this. And I think, well, actually you do. I wish you, I mean, it used to be worse when I was first studying Sanskrit and stuff. Some of the things, they'd go off, the scholars would go off into Latin at that point. They'd say, well, a normal person is not allowed to know this. It might be something fairly tame by modern standards. It might be the Kama Sutra or something. Right. This bit of the Kama Sutra is so, or the Thousand Miles is so kind of beyond the pale, we're going to go into Latin now. So only really educated people are going to even have a clue what we're on about. Like I thought, but that was strange. So I kind of rejected <laughs> that. I thought, yeah, it's a very Victorian approach. Yeah. So I always thought, now put the whole, at least put all the sources in so that other people can... That, that I'm doing so that other people even if they don't like my theory mm. or what I inter how I interpret it they've at least got the source that they can use sure uh, and uh, in the end I assembled such a lot of sources over the years plus my own kind of approach to magic which is um based on cycles and the uh, kind of ritual year and stuff that I reconstructed, I thought it would be useful. Uh, it was time to 
pull it all together in what all just all the practical stuff and say what the implications of it were and say how it went <laughs> and when we did some of these rituals right uh, or at least suggest that people might want going to want to know this stuff because digging out liturgy from ancient Egypt is it's not it takes a certain amount of work to find the, the stuff you know yeah. uh, for particular deities that people want to work with so I just that's how that's how I compiled the book really and then I kind of thought what are the different stages that you need to kind of do if you're going to prepare yourself for this so yeah that's like, a, go on <laughs> no, sorry I, w- I would like to go to the person mark more yeah. in, in, in a moment because you just mentioned a few things of your path and i think we should know more about mm-hmm. that if you may uh, yeah. but um before that what hit me when i first discovered your books in which is quite some years back um that set in the Egyptian side at, and it was now in your discussion as well, mm-hmm. it's very present. And as you mm-hmm. say, it is often taken as left-hand pass and very put a dark stamp on it and etc. cetera. Um, and I don't get in your approach at all that impression. Uh, well, it, cool. it's, to me, it sounds <laughs> like, uh, uh, well, I don't have that impression either, maybe I'm influenced, but um, to me, it sounds like the necessary side to make hermeticism possible, you know, to, to have both both sides present in order to be whole. Um, um, do I get that right? Or how do you, if you would expand a bit on the, <laughs> on the deity of Set and how you see it and yeah. also in its context? Well, I mean, I study philosophy and stuff. And in philosophy, the, there's a, the big problem, one of the big problems of philosophy is the problem of evil anyway. The problem yeah. of evil is supposed to be one of the most important things that you can study. So wherever way you look at it, you, you really, you've got this deity that is supposed to be the personification of evil and has formed the model for evil in all these su- subsequent systems that come after it, whether that's true or not. So I kind of thought, it was, a, I was a bit nervous about that, to be honest, I, I must admit, right? Because I thought, well, what, what is, what is gonna, that going to do to you? You know, in, in a sense, to your psychology and everything. But... Mm-hmm. So there's always an element of, of risk there, but it just seemed it was legitimate to explore it with an, with, with an open mind, uh, with the expectation that perhaps things weren't going to be all as they seemed. Uh, so again, so you say about hermeticism, so you have the corpus hermeticum, uh, some body of text, which is very, very, mostly very theoretical. You know, there's a couple of sure. practical things, but mostly it's philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're kind of wondering where's the, where is the kind of practical counterpart to that? Uh, so that's that, that's that's what they, I suppose, I would think, and I think it's true. Is the is the PGM is this uh, group of papyri that most people think it, some of the aims in it are a little bit dodgy really and set appears in that a lot and also in a kind of fairly abusive way sometimes mm-hmm. but they're the two sides of the hermetic tradition that's the th- you got the theory and the practice and so you've got you've got to look at the practice so the setting thing you you find obviously for some reason 
Well, for various reasons, we probably don't want to go into too much, but there's this idea that Set was somehow better in the past, maybe, <laughs> and then and gradually kind of got demonised, right? So it took on the role of the scapegoat for the entire of the Egyptian society, and that's why they're never going to quite get rid of him, because you always have to have that in the society. Need yeah, yeah, yeah. You need that. You need someone who who is who does the bad stuff, you know, or you don't even in, in necessarily the bad stuff. They have to do the difficult things. Uh, yeah. You know, that that's, he's, a, he's supposed to be an emanation of the sun god Ra, who, who is, has this function of doing the, the, the nasty things that nobody else can do or, yeah. or whatever. So, yeah, no, so eventually you, look, the, no, nobody knows exactly, but, because some people think that he was he always had a, this kind of ambiguous malign side but other people think well maybe he, there's something about the process of history and the, the rise of different cultures that that means like such a such an earthy passionate deity as a set tends to get kind of it, it hasn't got so much of a place within civilized society so-called because civilized society is about family values and he is kind of slightly uh, against that so you'd think there might be a tendency for it for, for for them to be demonized but let's say all of this again is is up in the air because uh, we, once for a time we only had the kind of greek view of of, of this this deity where where it was definitely influenced by the idea that he's absolutely evil but as they've discovered more egyptian sources about set they discover it's a little bit more complicated than that mm-hmm. but whatever he's he's He's, all right, it's not about family values, but he is about psychological values uh, within that culture. He represents a lot of the psychology and, for want of a better word, the magic within that that, that culture. So, yeah, you, you can't avoid it, really. I should say, even though that was my kind of personal journey, <clears throat> uh, there's something about the nature of set it, that you find also within with tantric deities or with the idea of tantric tantrics they claim that they understand everybody else right because they got the secret if you like they they know what's really going on and that makes them annoying and that's the same with set one of the things that people say set is evil because he knows everybody else's secret he knows the secret of all the other gods uh and he's always threatening to blow the cover, if you like, and tell and, t- and tell everybody what's really going on. So, and, and that makes him kind of that's part of his, his evil nature. But we kind of like that in in, in in some sort of way. We 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 appreciate that. It's like low key in the German in the, yeah, the German. Yeah, in, that's a good uh, parallel as well. I think right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I should anyway. I should say, even though that was my p- particular sect if you like uh, my particular personal thing you learn because of the nature of the god and the way he's so involved in everybody else's mythology in the Egyptian system you kind of learn quite a lot about um, everybody else's all the other deities and stuff so part of the reason of doing the Egyptian magic thing obviously set of figures a lot in there but I've kind of decentered it slightly uh, 
so that it kind of gives it a more general feel. So you're getting into the whole system. And that also, paradoxically, that is a Setian point of view as well, because that was the weird thing about the Temple of Seti the first. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to be named after Set, the god Set, and you'd think, you know, like typical megalomaniac pharaohs, it would be just one deity there that his family cult and maybe the the consort and the, and the child at triplicity but right. at Abydos you've got you've got lots of dead you've got certainly you've got seven of them mm-hmm. uh, so it's almost like the Setian view is very uh, inclusive uh, and ecumenical in a way which is not what you expect it kind of Absolutely. you know and so bringing that up so that seems quite a good point of view as well because like Pagan, in terms of modern paganism, we kind of think being too into one thing or one deity kind of messes you up, really. Uh, you know, when you look at all these mm-hmm. other religions that are kind of completely, oh, there's only one force in the universe and we, uh, there's only one truth and we know it. And you say, well, yeah, but it's kind of hasn't done us any good. Uh, (laughs) Whereas the idea of maybe it's a bit more pluralism and let everybody else worship all these different things, because they're also in the universe, that seems healthier, I think. Well, I'm sure you you know the (laughs) Egyptologist Jan Asman. Yeah. uh, yeah, yeah. And he, of course, he he supports your theory here completely. He he says that monotheism has brought all the the hate of religion into the world because you didn't have an escape from that single-mindedness somehow. Right, well, there you go. Yeah, no. But it's an interesting aspect also, I think, when we marry what we said before, that Egyptology, or no, Egyptian magic, sorry, Egyptian magic um, has a kind of a revival lately. On the other hand, um, it would be interesting how Set can then maybe heal a few things of our society today because that society more and more has a problem with confronting itself to to something that's disturbing, let's put it that way. Um, everything has to be smooth and nice and uh, safe spots everywhere. And Set is all the contrary, isn't he? He he has the the eye. <laughs> he he. You take it from the mythological. His one of his functions is uh, is protecting the sun god, who and and it's all this function is a thing called the evil eye. And this, uh, if anything, the idea of absolute evil. There's this another entity called Apophis that um, mm. that set battles with. Uh, and that's part of his function. So um, the thing that Apophis, his power is the power of the evil eye. He can hypnotize all the other Egyptian gods. He can paralyze them just by looking at them. And there's only one deity you can really look at into the void that is everything, you know, and, and not be completely paralyzed by that. So that's part, yeah, that is part of his unique power. He can look, he can... He's not. There are no kind of barriers in a way. Uh, I always think that with the with with the tarot, you know, if you kind of look at the devil card in the, some traditional tarot tarot decks, in the maybe the right way, 
there's a, there's an idea maybe sometimes that you've got the devil in and you've got the man and the woman kind of chained at the altar of the of of the devil right. in the sense of they and that's supposed to be they're kind of not very heavily chained actually you look at the chains they could they could pull them away if they wanted to but the idea is that they kind of have to it's, there's something about their sexuality that is messing them up but mm. that's the old view in the some tarot decks, especially the Crowley one. The devil is 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 saying it's almost like a Freudian thing, which is not unlike the Egyptian stuff. The, the sexuality and the sensuality and the kind of the pleasure of life is actually the thing that might liberate you. It's it's the, it's the repression of that that is kind of well they've tried it they've been repressing that for a long time and then it's it's caused it's caused all the problems so it's saying there's a change of view there that you need to explore the unconscious if you like you have to explore what what it is that you're about and why you're there and that's that's what the in a sense what the the devil as an icon is kind of same because it doesn't really exist but the ideas that flow into that concept of the devil and Satan and everything ultimately it does go back to a deity like Seta I think where he's kind of saying he's saying to people he's breaking the rules of certain but he's also in favour of every man and every woman you know and that he wants them to look not to kind of live this life of uh, of being kind of circumscribed or whatever one way, but to look into the eye of chaos ultimately. If you're a magician, that's a kind of big trip. Well, but, that, <laughs> yeah. but maybe that, which it is, isn't it? You know, that's kind of magic. It's always kind of this idea that you've got to, there's something you need to see in your psyche or in the world or whatever, and that it needs a certain amount of preparation <laughs> uh, to be yeah, ready for this. And Some call it the abyss, and yeah, the example. abyss. All yeah, these kind yeah, of ideas—they're yeah, yeah, also yeah. pointing in the same direction. That rather than yeah. kind of building up a, a, a thicker wall, so that you you block it out completely, because you know that won't work anyway. That in the end it will just burst through in some other less controllable form. It's yeah. it's the idea. It's best to explore it, uh, and what and set is the deity does that. But as I say, in the the broader theme of Egyptian magic, I've kind of broadened it out. I think all the deities play a part in this kind of mystery in one way or another. But it just—it was accidentally. I think it. I would say that it was—it was a exploring and setting thing that kind of got me into all of this stuff yeah. to some extent. Although I, as I say, I, wrote, I, wrote, I also wrote this kind of book about Ice, the goddess Isis, because. Who, in a sense, is, is almost like anathema to the Setian exactly. view. Yeah, but I yeah. kind of felt that I kind of explored, I understood that as well, right? That uh, and that it was right that can, that should be honoured. Can you understand one without the other? Yeah, that's right. It's that 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 would be a very Egyptian view. That it's everything yeah. is kind of relative, and it's easier to understand relationships between people in a family setting or in a group. Uh, and how they interact with each other and the things that they do than it is to kind of look at them just as a pure in itself type thing. Yeah. So the, the Octoadic view, of course, when you have those four couples who are always composing the whole, right? 
Say that again, the four cup. The, the, oc- the octuadic view, you know. All right, okay. Those the kind four of- four op- opposition opposed couples who need to be together to form the whole... This is the system of yeah. yeah. They, well, because the, the Egyptians have lots of different, what would you call it, cosmologies. Then that's yes. a, one of their old cosmological systems. Yes, it's an older one. But these kind of patterns, these groups, these collectives of gods or forces or whatever you want to call them, are obviously the. They're saying this is this is an easier way to understand the complex reality that we live in than just focusing on one one entity that. And not seeing because relationships, most things, it's easier to understand a relationship than it is just power or absence of power. A relationship, we've got some sort of handle on that. Um, so yeah, you need to, to understand this, the holy family really of Egypt, more or less, <laughs> exactly. and a few That's other a things. <laughs> <laughs> Let's now take our usual little musical break and... Uh, Uh, as I said, we are going to play this week music from people who have already been played on this show. And I thought they were really interesting to bring them back, show you a little bit what we have been doing here over the last four years. Uh, no, but seriously, they, are, they all have written so many nice and good pieces of music. I thought it would be a pity not to play them either again or in other versions to you. So here we go. Our next piece of music now will be called Babylon Gates Open. You have heard another piece by the same guy, which is already called Babylon Gates. And now this is Babylon Gates Open. And its author and interpret is Hassan Ismail, also a young occultist. He lives in the United States. He has, of course, a rabbit background, as you hear by his name. And, um, well, I think his music is really very lovely, very deep and very interesting. So I hope you're going to enjoy that. And, um, well, after Babylon Gates open, uh, we will come back, Morg and I, and we will continue the interview, the second part of the interview for you and directly After the second part of the interview, um, there is somebody who I really wanted to bring back because I really adore his music. His music is really particularly written as transcendental music, consciousness music, I think he calls it, with his guitar. Master Wilburn Burchette. I played him already twice, I believe, on this, on this show, but um, can't get enough of it. And today, the piece that you're going to hear after the interview by Master Wilburn Burchett is called Witch's Will. But for the moment, it's, um, it is Hassan Ismail and his Babylon Gates Open.
Let's now go to to Mark himself, because, oh, um, uh, <laughs> well, as far as you wish. But um, yeah. Mark, when was it the first time that you realized you were interested in things like that and that they were things that maybe not every kid or young man or student, I don't know when it happened for you, um, would be interested in? How, where did it start for you? It started at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, <laughs> where better to start than at the beginning? I, I yeah, fairly early on, I think. But yeah, you know, um, I think I've probably. I'm one of these people who. I don't have a problem with the word religion, to be honest. I know there's a lot of kind of people in my neck of the woods and paganism and everything kind of got this thing up they don't like the word religion but yeah i'm not so uptight about it really uh but I, I understand why people don't like it right the, the word right because of all the association and the terrible things that have been done in that in the name of that but anyway it's a very useful idea but i would say that i've always i kind of think think i've always been a kind of religious person really mm -hmm. uh I've always had that. I can't remember not. May I ask like something that, specific know? here? What, what is for you the difference between a religious person and a spiritual person? Why would you call yourself rather a religious person? Oh, God. That's a whole good question. <laughs> um, well, it's the same sort of thing. All right. Some people prefer the... Mm. I, I mean, I think the term religion is some sort of collective view is it? it's a little bit of an artificial thing a religion right. has to be said I think you're right about that mm. uh, if that's what you said not put words in your mouth or anything the, but it's a kind of very useful term that is uh, expressed for some sort of collective view uh, connected, uh, connected with the uh, with a particular set of gods and goddesses or beliefs or whatever. Right. Uh, that initially you get, you're probably going to pick it up in your, in your culture, don't you? You know, wherever you were brought up in the Christian West, uh, yeah. then it's, even if you don't come from a religious family, it kind of permeates you. Sure. So it, from, from that, uh, you know, it's, it was, Just I said say I can't think of when I wasn't like that, but it's just a question of exploring and if you like different spiritual paths mm -hmm. as you as you go through that to kind of think and obviously you, you, your first stop is usually um, something like uh, what your culture is. So for me, there would be Christianity, but then you know I, I kind of got a lot a certain a lot of respect for the kind of experience in a way for the static type of Christianity for the kind of uh, some of the philosophy but uh, like everybody else you, you get turned off by the by the institution uh, and you, know, you think no this is you get you, dis you become disillusioned but luckily I didn't become disillusioned with the spiritual path or the religious path I, get, I just thought no that's I respect it, and I still, as someone was saying the other day, you've got a lot of Bibles around there. I've got about three Bibles or something, because I obviously went through a stage of reading the Bible. Sure. Um, 
uh, as people do, but you kind of you disillusion you think, well, I still I still believe I still have the experience the uh, the spiritual experience or the aesthetic experience I might have had in in certain religious settings regardless of all the bullshit and everything mm. so I'm not going to deny that and say that that didn't happen I didn't feel that way I didn't feel kind of inspired and motivated by this stuff but the the institution is is not it so I'm going to go like everybody else you go on your search then uh, so I mean, it's quite early times really uh, okay. just reading about Strange Thought and Blavatsky and trying to make sense of Blavatsky and then realising you're too stupid or either she's too stupid or you're too stupid to make any sense of it, you know, because it's all over the place. But Was it the- available to you? Did you, how, did you? how did you get it? I mean, not everybody had it on their kitchen table, right? Well, uh, I come from Wales and... Um, mm. I don't know if that's coincidence or not, but as I've told this story before that it, uh, I... You know, I spent a lot of time in libraries, uh, even uh, from quite an early age, because my mother was uh, always went to the library every week, uh, and I went along with her even from from the earliest time I can remember. Mm-hmm. So there you go, from my mother. So she'd be buying, you know, buying, she'd be borrowing a whole bunch of books for her reading for the week. And I'd say, go and pick something. So I go and pick all these strange books and everything. And they go, to, God knows, go to check it out. And the librarian would say, it's a, it's a strange book for a kind of 10-year-old or something. And she said, well, what is it? Well, or oh, well, Sigmund Freud. I said, oh, let him have it. You know, why not? You know, probably won't read it anyway. But that seemed like, so it was a good library. We had a very good library. This is the thing, see, libraries are kind of like the magical places, yeah, I think. Definitely. I think they are the ultimate definitely. temples in culture. Yeah. And that library had a, for some reason, had a really good collection of magical books. Mm. But they were kept in a special cupboard uh restricted cupboard okay. um, and supposedly you had to be you, you, you it wasn't just you, you had to be an adult you had to know what was there uh, if you couldn't say ask for the book by name um they wouldn't let you have it right you had okay. to know right okay. because they, okay. that was their censoring device but if you could work out what it was that was kept secret in the cupboard then they let you read it okay. uh, and so they had all sorts of weird stuff but including they had they had Crowley's book there and they had Blavatsky's stuff mm. so I ended up so I worked it out I worked out whether it was there somehow and they let me read it which is kind of spooky Great. very spooky yeah. book yeah. to read at an early age yeah. Uh, but yeah no, we were very fortunate I, th- I guess that it, w- it was the 60s probably 70s hangover from the 60s 70s something like that maybe they still had all this crazy stuff in there <laughs> or maybe you know maybe the librarian was kind of Interested himself, yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah. yeah. Many librarians were actually, yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, there you go. Yeah, They're yeah. heroes, really. Yeah. What would we do without the librarian? Definitely, definitely. <laughs> uh, you, you know, when you listen to those interviews, when I ask people that, how many say it was their library who brought them yeah. uh, in contact with those things? And then, did you meet other people? Did you start practicing yourself, or how did that happen? 
I did what everybody does in my kind of tradition, which is you get Crowley's book, you know. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and you end up invoking <laughs> your whatever Satan or something in your bedroom. <laughs> no, I yeah. mean, so, so actually, Crowley's book is quite kind of sensible in some ways. Um, there is that sort of stuff. I mean, I've heard people now say that, that they come home and the kids have kind of got this book and they're trying to make each other invisible or something, you know. It's sort of eight-year-olds, oh, you're going to be invisible. Uh, but usually it starts, you have to do this yoga stuff. Hmm. Crowley's yoga is a bit crap, really, but but even so, you do this sort of Raja yoga stuff. Yeah. So it's weird, yeah. you're into magic, but then it says to go and do this kind of meditation exercise. And if you do, if you follow the instructions, or if you work out how to follow the instructions, it will, like it says, it will, it will kind of, um, it will open a door for you. Really, maybe it's scary in a scary way. It will be so, it's so scary. You probably close it again immediately and say, oh "God, I can't." That's, that, see, the other thing, you're upstairs in your bedroom in your parents' house, which, again, these are all kind of archetypes, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we've talked about the library, you know, again, all these are commonplace things that we take for granted, but they're kind of the source of our initiation. But also the parents' house, which I know it doesn't mean anything to a lot of people who don't have that, but it's like they are, they're very protective. My parents are very protective. So even if you're exploring... You're doing the old, the really big adventure, really, aren't you? You're kind of taking your consciousness apart. Yeah. Not Crowley, yeah. anyway. It's quite dramatic, yeah. and you think, well, maybe it won't go back together again. Maybe I'm going to kind of, you know, people do they think like that. that. Yeah. They think it's yeah. going to drive you mad. Yeah. It's the yeah. brain isn't supposed to do those things. Yeah. You are, you're yeah. not supposed to kind of flick all these switches and everything that yoga tells you or meditation tells you to do this particular magical form of meditation anyway yeah but then there's always this sort of well there's the kind of parents or it's the parents house which is the ultimate temple in a way protecting you so nothing can go that wrong I wouldn't have thought so yeah that's that's the sort of long story that's how I started out you know I started out probably quite early and then kind of Yeah, you, you joined TOTO at some stage, didn't you? Do you know that? Yeah, I did. Um, uh, yeah, I can't. It, that was, I wrote to the OTO. I, got, I went to the Atlantis Bookshop. As you know, that's the next stage. Well, you know, Atlantis, Atlantis you've got to go to the Atlantis Bookshop. A classic. Probably something different these days. But you go to the Atlantis Bookshop and you buy one of these nefarious books for yourself with money. You know? Yeah. And. Uh, yeah, scary thing. <laughs> Take a it's still oh. it's still a wonderful place <laughs> until today. Yeah, no, that's yeah, right. Yeah, I think a lot yeah, of people yeah. must trace the. A, that's a threshold. Going to that shop and seeing the yeah. strange books. Yeah. And actually getting one, you know, and kind of t- taking it home and everything. That's that's an exchange. But anyway, I got. Uh, I think I bought a, a tarot deck as well. And in the tarot deck, it had an address. And you, you write. You, so I thought, oh, I'll write to this address. But which is in America. It must have been the American people. But okay. strangely, I what it wasn't. I didn't get a letter from them. I think. I wonder whether the Typhonians were sort of intercepting the mail of the OTO. <laughs> anyway, so I got this letter from someone in, in Britain. 
mm-hmm. in the, which as you know at that time there were there was a kind of split, I suppose you'd say, yeah, yeah diplomatically between, between the, the Caliphate, etc. So there's the American. Yeah. Well, the American version wasn't organised then. The American version never got going until in this country, or it revived. It started again in about 1980, somewhere or other, 1983, maybe. Right. Um, I'm pretty sure that's so. It didn't really assist. <laughs> it probably did in America or whatever, but it suddenly went through this. It had a load of associates. I know that for a fact because I yeah. was in a, a kind of Wiccan group for a while mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. locally in Oxford. <laughs> And there was a guy who used to come to that, and he was a sort of an associate of the American OTO, but they weren't doing anything. But then a year or so later, they kind of activated all the sleepers. <laughs> <laughs> they sent this message to all of them to wake up and, okay. Do, okay. and do their thing. So that's how the American... They, they might not like that term, but the American OTL kind of suddenly became a thing in Britain. But before yeah. that, there was a very small, nefarious group of people called uh, around, led by Ken, Kenneth Grant, who'd been sort of involved sure. earlier. Sure. So that was the group I got involved with. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And um, are you are you today still still active in that in that group or are you uh, no, what are you to, what is Morg Morgan I you know mean, I got, you know from I that point of view today it, it was um, it was uh, I mean it was a step right? it was five, I was involved with them for about five years and obviously it's the ty- Typhonian is kind of it, it's very into these two particular mysteries, supposedly, the mysteries of Set and the mysteries of Tantrism. Absolutely. Uh, they're two famous things, but there's some other bits and pieces also that they're kind of are responsible for popularising in, in magic, pop magic in a way, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, which would be the kind of first, well, the Lovecraft thing is sort of pop, pop magic, magic in a way. But yeah. anyway, so I it obviously... T- got me interested in that sort of stuff and I met all sorts of other people and did some quite a lot of things but in the end we kind of parted with I actually got a spell from that group I don't even knew that I a renegade okay uh, but no, whatever so it, that's a long time ago and sure, my, sure. But it, well, it certainly yeah. got me interested in in other things in the set, it, it was it got me it pointed me towards the SETI and stuff. It didn't actually tell you a lot of useful stuff about it, to be honest. I think I know all the books and everything existing and stuff, but sometimes actually get it's, they're very complicated books, right? Put it diplomatically, and uh, <laughs> so you know whether it will actually tell you how to do these things. Yeah, uh, yeah. I I'm not sure really. It sort yeah. of suggests the mystery, but I think you're going to have to go elsewhere to actually flesh it out. Which mm. that's, that's what I found out I had to do. Yeah. And I'm not the only one. I think other people had to go somewhere else to actually, having been given this inspiration, to get the sort of wherewithal to kind of make it work. Really. Yeah. Would you would you call yourself being eclectic in that point of view, or is that would you not like that term? 
I don't mind. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose i probably got a view. I don't know if you could use, use uh, isn't it like idea of magical bricolage? It's kind of another, <laughs> another term uh, rather than eclectic because eclectic yeah. sort of sounds like you're not too serious. Yes. True. But then, but then I kind of have this view of Egyptian magic as well, that it's, it's also practices bricolage and mm-hmm. <clears throat> in a sense of kind of takes things from that are useful and combines them but also uh, see, yeah. because the Egyptian magic has this reputation for being very complex and formal but people don't recognise that there are actually elements of it that are very improvised and uh, combining all sorts of stuff that maybe shouldn't shouldn't be there so so I kind of I know that's a kind of roundabout way of saying, yeah, maybe I am, but I kind of think that that's the ancient way. I think that uh, is the ancient uh, way. I, I, yeah, I, I believe so too. I mean, uh, you're right about the term eclectic, even though I think that's a, that's, that's a sense that, that has been given to it and which is not the original sense. The original sense is a type of bricolage being eclectic for to me at least maybe yeah. i'm not a native english speaker maybe maybe there is a difference between the the german use and the english use of the word eclectic that's possible mm. um, but when i read that you founded a group like the oxford golden dawn society right occult society golden dawn occult society is called um, um i mean that's exactly what you do what I read i only read it you you tell me if i'm wrong but um um that that puts things from different schools together and 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 works with it or or is that do i get that wrong the when I, that, that happened when i there was one of the kind of issues I was when i was in the oto was you're supposed to do something like that you're supposed to spread the word in a way mm-hmm. uh, because it's got this kind of a schema of work. And sure. uh, so that was, there's a reason I got into ISIS because, you know, you've got this Crowley thing that you're supposed to work on the devotional side of your personality, which is an interesting idea, yeah. saying that we're all too intellectual, really, and you need to kind of do something a bit more with some feeling in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he has this suggestion of, and that means working with devotion to a deity. So uh, kind of, being in Oxford, I kind of got into ISIS. For that was my first encounter with with ISIS, really, before anything, and that was under the aegis of the OTO, technically. And the same with the the, the uh, magical order, the Golden Dawn. Um, it was a kind of magical task to kind of sp- to create a fellowship of some sort and to spread. Uh, spread the word, if you like. So that was that was the reasoning. That that was the reason that happened. But uh, say these things that happen is say I kind of think if people are interested in magic, it's 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 less important what things are called, but it's finding other people who are willing to kind of because to cooperate and experiment with you and to be part of your tribe for a little while. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so that was more what we, we were kind of doing. So initially it was like, well, look, everybody's here is into wicker and stuff. They, they, yeah. they, that was a flavour of that. Okay, well, let's let's do that then. You know, let's all right. All the existing covens are kind of they don't want anything to do with us anyway because I don't know why. But let's just do it. You know, like everybody else did. You know, <laughs> let's just go out and be witches. So we yeah, and sure. the same yeah. with the golden yeah. dawn. We thought. 
it doesn't really exist as a, as a group anymore, but it was an interesting uh, idea. Let's just restart our version of it, be inspired by it, if you like, so not to do the very formal Masonic yeah. rituals. I was just talking to someone tonight about that. I said that, in a way, the most interesting aspect of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was not those very famous rituals that they do, um, but the things that the members did with each other in smaller groups, in small intense groups, maybe two or three, or exploring particular mysteries. Uh, right. Whether it might be sexual magic, it might be Enochian chess, it might be kind of spiritual magic, it might be the sort of Egyptian stuff. Those, so it, the, the, the thing formed a sort of fellowship for people that brought people together to to form to form these smaller cells that were doing a useful thing, and that was the kind of pattern we were in. We did we just made up whatever rituals we fancied, seeing how they worked really. Uh, so it was like our own because we, I don't know, we didn't really find that there was much in terms of other organisations around that would um, that we could work with. There was some. Everybody was just starting out, so we thought, given that nobody knows. Some people know a lot of stuff, right? And they're willing to teach you and stuff. But uh, basically, everybody was at the stage. You just had to go out and do it. Uh, yeah. Make it make it happen. And it's more important the fact that you've got a dozen or so people who happen to be together at that moment who want to work together. And that is uh, something, again, it's another thing that people take for granted. And they talk about oh you want groups to go on forever and everything but it's more a question of people come together like constellations or something for often for short periods of time yeah yeah creatively they do something and then it comes to a point where you've exhausted that and all the it's people that I also, with, also time quality that brings together the right people in in yeah, the right it's place. It's a particular probably. moment yeah. that brings people yeah. together and we definitely did that and we mm. did all sorts of fellowship things that kind of uh, extended it and uh, spread the word outside of that but also we did all sorts of intense stuff that people thought well this, they found what they wanted within that which they might wanted to get into their own into deeper into witchcraft or deeper into kind of uh, European sort of magical tradition Bulgarian stuff all sorts of things or just into music or uh whatever that people just because we always had a lot we always well you know the pagan pagans at first their music was completely in britain was completely dire really you know cause everybody rushed out and got this massive biggest drum they could get and so there's this awful racket that we used to make but after a while people got more realized you do need music in the ritual yeah. A movement, but you know, it got more subtle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And people yeah, yeah, became. Yeah. Some other people became quite became professional. Music became their path, really. Yeah. You know, that's that's what the magic led them. They was still part of the magic, but their manifestation was to be to make music. Yeah. Or yeah. wherever it is, you say to make poetry and stuff. It's, it's another aspect of 
Well, art, well, art, art is, is art is, in magic. is magic. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, um, that gives me now a perfect lead over to we have to talk about Mandrake, of course, Mandrake of Oxford, your <laughs> your publishing house for a moment. And I would love to call you the the art director of occultism somehow, because <laughs> because um, I mean, when you go on the website of Mandrake, you are fascinated because of the of the the number the sheer number of authors and titles that are have are there now and and how immensely the adventure has grown but uh, what what did you make it what what made it happen in the first place how did that start for you when did you decide to 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 do that well, I think it is a nomadic thing, uh, the publishing books, right? in the sense that it's kind of part of the magical thing one does, is that we're so into books and mm. uh, as magicians, and Hermes is all about communication and stuff, so I'd always be wanting to do that. But, I mean, it, kind of, it has to be said, initially it was, that you know, I think the other thing, magicians are quite, always have lots of ideas in the end if it goes right, and they can be a, sound a bit pretentious, really, but that, that they have these great theories. But initially it was that nobody was interested in, nobody would have published what we did, really. Mm -hmm. um, so we thought, right, we kind of thought all the traditional people, so... Um, because it was so unfashionable, really, the, the, some of the things we were doing. Um, and I think even I had a, a friend uh, who, I don't know where she is now, Cheska Potter, right, who was a kind of visionary artist. Yeah. And, but again, that type of visionary art that she was doing was so un unfashionable, even when she was at art school and stuff, it was just not where the art world was, was into. It wasn't into that sort of stuff or mm -hmm. was very critical of it even, very destructive would say it was, a, you know, cultural appropriation, even though it was just everything they could throw at you. They'd say, no, it's horrible, but we shouldn't be doing that, blah, blah, blah. It's not modern. Mm. So... Initially, it was that she used to produce these tiny little ideas and nobody <laughs> couldn't get it published. So I thought, oh, well, we just, again, by accident, had access to this wherewithal. So we kind of just, and nobody else was going to do it. So we thought, well, let's do our do it ourselves. Let's do Samizdat, if you like. It was like first yeah. help publishing Samizdat, like in the Russian thing, of very cheap, kind of using new technology photocopying just to get our crazy ideas out there and it just sort of when did, off when did you start it when did you start it how this long is, has that been now? this is in the late 1980s with, with oh, really, yeah. really strange little pamphlets and then people say oh, why don't you do this piece of rubbish you know nobody's nobody's gonna be nobody cares about that <laughs> you know it's like even a lot of Crowley stuff wasn't really yeah. available yeah, or also yeah. or just other things so it, it just took from that and then we kind of thought oh let's do a magazine a fanzine but instead of taking your your either you know let's use the wiccans and the occultists hating each other's guts say let's just let's, let's just uh, express it all right let's just not yeah. have any censorship yeah, yeah, in that yeah, sense yeah, yeah. Uh, and be diverse so 
Yeah, so it was from doing the fanzines and then kind of thinking, well, how are we going to fill this thing up? What are we going to do? So I kind of started filling stuff up. So, yeah, no, and after that, it just... Well, it just sort of spiralled out of control, really. But I always (laughs) try to do things that... They are part of the magic. If you like, they're part of the magic that interests me or part of my magical yeah. journey as well. They're things that I think that I find interesting. Mm. Or even if I don't agree with them, I kind of think yeah. it's those views ought to be out there, really. That's, yeah. that's kind of yeah. quite in, ingenious. So, yeah. um, but that's yeah. why I call you the art director of occultism. Well, because, there you uh, go. No, I think you're right, really. I think yeah. well, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say you're right. <laughs> No, but I think the role of occult, the role of publishing houses over the past has been as sort of gatekeepers for certain types of yeah. magic that has become available, say, especially with the new age publishers or the whatever the Llewellyns and Wises and everything. They had a certain, I mean, some of them have some amazing things, but they also they kind of have certain uh, limits, limits or certain okay. parameters to what they do. Yeah. that they're not necessarily going to cross over into. And especially, again, it's the same with the academic publishers. Yeah. They're very conservative about going certain ways. They don't want to study magic, although they do now. It's kind of everything is magic. Start. But then they yeah. wouldn't have... They, I mean, I, I think it's true that, say, Ronald Hutton's first book on the pagan religions of the ancient British Isles, the OUP wouldn't do it. And yeah, I could be wrong yeah. they, because they thought it's not really an academic publishing yeah. thing to do. So we yeah. did the Blackwells, yeah. which is another great publishing house, and they made a killing with it, right? Because they really hit a nerve mm-hmm. with that book, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then OUP kind of crumbled. I right? say, so, oh, this obviously there is a, an approach here, and so the, then the information becomes instead of restricting it becomes available so I think the new publishing houses now the same thing they have a certain types of ideas things like say chaos magic right you wouldn't have got that published anywhere apart from in the Samistar at first yeah, uh, yeah. but now everybody's a chaos magician uh, yeah. <laughs> but but then they, you know in fact they they go out of their way to trash it you know say yeah. No, yeah. this is disgusting. This is or this is just adolescent stuff. Yeah. So say, well, all right, well, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of refreshing. Uh, this, well, I think it's stuff. very important what you say that you that you have. To, uh, I try to do the same thing here with the mm. podcast. Mm. I do not always agree with with the ideas and uh, and the the the, the, the paths that are being presented by my guests here. But it's important to show them because they picture the whole. The whole Western tradition as it is, and that's exactly how I feel. What you do with your with your mandrake, and uh, uh, well, uh, it's it's an amazing amazing catalog that you have, really. Well, thank you for that. So, no, really great. Um, well, it's it's horrible. We are at the end of this interview, and we haven't touched uh, subjects <laughs> I wanted absolutely to touch, like the, the link between Egypt and South Asia, for example, or something. Well, yeah. So God. definitely, Mog, you have to come back. So right. I think that's, well, that's uh, a great have subject. To, I have to do a sequel on, on, on certain subjects. But before I let you go, Mog, um, um, maybe you want to tell us your immediate future projects that we should be on our lookout for the moment and what's what's coming up in in your magical life 
Oh, God. <laughs> Quite a lot of stuff, right, to, ca- to come out. Some of it I can't really talk about too much, but, I, mm. you know, I did the book, The Demonic Calendar. Uh, right. Which was based on another thing that's taking over kind of people's, or reconstructing people's magical work is the, the issue of the decans, uh, of the, which I call the demonic calendar of, the, of ancient Egypt originally. So I've extended that and I've done a whole bunch more stuff of how you might use that and what happened to it when it left Egypt and stuff. So that I'm doing that and... Um, Probably that's next. I sp- I've got all this other material on um, another subject. You see, the folk tradition in Egypt, the, the tradition of Tsar and a static trance, which I've got all this field work that I've done, uh, and material about that. So, but something else keeps coming up. You know, at some point, I was thinking, I should finally recover, put all this stuff out there. Um, and then an, another project comes out, so I don't know really. Um, but that one's <laughs> definitely happening. Um, right. uh, oh, it is the first version of that is out, but there's going to be an extended version now with this new interpretive material that I've managed to dig out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so maybe I'll do some fun with that. And God, yeah, there's so much more to. Well. At the risk of making, <laughs> I've got lots of new ideas, which is um, Austin Spears' last words apparently was in the hospital was to say, I've got lots of new ideas. Um, so you've got to be careful about saying things about like that. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you have to find our last words for this interview now, Mark. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Would you be that? Give our give our audience some last words for that. What 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 do you what do you suggest to a young person who wants to dig into Egyptian magic? Where should they start? Well, definitely start. I, I think my book is a good start, right, for magic, and also because magic is the religion of Egypt. Really, that's the other big big lesson. That it's not some side thing. This is yeah. This is Egyptian culture, really, is, is the magical tradition. And everything else that we do within the pagan communities, in a sense, downriver from that, is, is so influenced by that. So we don't realise, I think Asman, Jan Asman says that, we don't realise how connected we still are with ancient Egypt. Yeah. Uh, it's so yeah. many things yeah. that have been forgotten, that are so, but it really does, we are really connected there. Uh, and magic kind of opens that up so yeah go and and go for that really do that and go back to the if even if you don't read anything just go out and draw down the plow <laughs> well, that it'll all happen now perfectly slow this <laughs> cycle um mark thank you so much for that really pleasant time with you and um i hope you also could enjoy it a bit and uh, thanks for being with us here today and uh, Good luck with all your projects and um, stay safe and healthy, as they say today.
Witch's Will by Master Wilburn Burchett from his collection of Transcendental Consciousness Music. I really think that guy is very special. His music from the 80s, I believe it is, and uh, I really like what he has been doing then. And before that, it was Mock with the interview, and even not before, even before that, it was Babylon's Gates Open by Hassan Ismail. And well, wasn't that interview really interesting? And um, as you could tell towards the end, there had, would have been so many other things I would have liked to talk yet to Mog, especially about the link to South Asia that he built between Egyptian magic and South Asia. And here on the Thoughts Hermes podcast, we usually do not um, talk lots about um, uh, the Eastern traditions, uh, but in that case, I would like to build a bridge at some point with Mok and have him back and talk about that part of his work, which we completely omitted due to lack of time. And uh, well, I always think it's a good sign when you come to the end of an interview and say to yourself, hmm, there would have been so many other things I would have liked to talk to that person. So, um, Good excuse to have him back, isn't it? Right. So, um, well, this is the end, not only of the episode, it's even the end of the season. Funny, 14 episodes we have done this season and in 14 weeks. Yeah, great. Um, back to normal now. It's not completely true. The first two episodes, we had a week break in between. Right. So, but still. We did uh, that all since April and um, really happy. I think you enjoyed it. I could see it by the figures. I hope you're going to enjoy just as much what's coming in mid-August. The next episode will be season seven, episode one, and we will start on August 15. Um, I'm not going to tell you who will be my guest then. I have two or three options, partly already recorded and I am still thinking what exactly will be the order of things when we start again. So it'll be August 15. That is for sure. At the usual place, you'll find us as always. And well, in the meantime, I wish you two weeks, two summer weeks or two winter weeks if you are down under that are nice and happy and um, hope not too many problems arising during that time. Okay, well, I say goodbye to you for today and for this season, and we will be back in two weeks, as I just said. And for the time being, what can I say? Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.